podcast, completely unpolarized, with Naomi Asombre Frimpong, George Bendo, Claire Bretherton, Fiona Healy, Jake Morgan, Ian Morrison, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, November 2016 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm George, and joining me in the studio today are Fiona, who's been a longtime contributor, and two new people, Naomi and Jake. Hello. Hello. Hi, George. Naomi and Jake, can both of you just uh, briefly tell us uh, what you're doing at Jodro Bank Center for Astrophysics? I'm Naomi, and this is my first year in PhD. I'm working with Professor Gary Fuller on the astrochemistry of masers and molecular clouds. Hello, I'm Jake. I'm also a first-year PhD student here at the university. I'm working with Dr. Eamon Kerens, and we're interested in hot Jupiter and super-Neptune-class exoplanets. And in particular, I'm looking to develop a software pipeline so we can choose the best possible targets to follow up with ground-based observations. Oh, great. So uh, hopefully both of you will be uh, joining us for many more episodes after this one, too. So on with the show, we have Charlie interviewing Dr. Laura Spittler about a repeating fast radio burst, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton will be taking a look at what's happening in the November night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Evans with this month's news. In the October edition of the Jogcast, we discussed the upcoming Schiaparelli lander component of the joint European-Russian mission to Mars, the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter mission. It was anticipated with some trepidation. Humankind's record for landing successfully on the surface of Mars has not been good. Of the 44 missions recorded by NASA, only 20 are considered to be successful or partially successful. The roll call of failures include the Mars Polar Orbiter and Beagle 2, which was a partial success as even though the lander failed, the Mars Orbiter Express sent much useful data back. Sadly, the ExoMars mission will also have to be classified as partially successful. While the orbiter was successfully placed in a high-altitude holding orbit around Mars, the lander impacted at high speed on the surface. Getting to the Martian surface is tougher than on Earth, as the atmosphere is 100 times thinner. Typically, space probes use aerobraking to slow themselves down. Friction from the atmosphere then converts kinetic energy into heat energy. This isn't as effective in the Martian atmosphere compared to Earth's and means that the lander will have to be travelling at supersonic speeds when the parachute deploys. Previous Mars landers have used a mixture of heat shields, parachutes, retro-rockets and airbags to get themselves safely to the surface. The Schiaparelli lander was designed as a technology testbed for later European Space Agency missions to the Red Planet. In addition to the supersonic parachute system, it made use of a guidance and control system based on a Doppler radar altimeter sensor and onboard inertial measurement units. ESA scientists were as interested in the data produced in the descent as they were in whether or not the lander arrived successfully on the surface. The early phases of the descent proceeded according to plan. Aerobraking slowed the lander from 21,000 km an hour down to 1,700 km an hour. At this point, the parachute successfully deployed. Five minutes and 22 seconds after the initial entry to the Martian atmosphere, at an altitude of 1.7 kilometres above the surface, the parachute, along with the rear cover, was to be jettisoned from the lander. At this point, thrusters should have fired for 30 seconds, bringing the lander's speed down to 4 kilometres an hour, just 2 metres above the surface of Mars. The lander would then drop down to the surface, where a carbon fibre cushion would absorb the low-speed impact. 
Data from the lander suggests that the thruster phase did not go according to plan. Instead of firing for 30 seconds, the thrusters fired for just 3 to 4 seconds. After this, the lander dropped down to the Martian surface in freefall and impacted at a speed of around 300 kilometers an hour. Images from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter of the landing site show two new features. One is believed to be the parachute and rear cover, the other the impact site of the lander, about one kilometre north of the parachute. It is thought that fuel in the thrusters' tanks exploded on impact, completely destroying the lander. The impact site was only 4.5 kilometres from the intended landing site and was well within the nominal landing ellipse. Any fall from a great height can be considered to be successful up to the point of impact. This can actually be said for the Schiaparelli lander, which sent back 600 megabytes of data on the descent up to the point of impact. This data will be used in later missions, including the ExoMars rover due to be launched in 2020. On a positive note, the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter will be placed into a circular orbit 250 miles above Mars after calibration tests completed in November. It will then be searching for gases such as methane to establish whether it is produced in the atmosphere as a result of geological or biological activity. If the methane is accompanied by propane or ethane, this may be a marker that indicates that it originates from a biological source. If it is seen with sulphur dioxide, then it's more likely to originate from geological activity. In addition, the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter will act as a communications relay for future ESA missions to Mars through to the year 2022. Jodcast listeners who are of a certain age or movie buffs will record Steve McQueen's first starring role in that wonderful film, The Blob. In this 1950s drive-in movie staple, a blob from outer space, looking suspiciously like strawberry jelly, invades the small US town of Downington, Pennsylvania, and proceeds to engulf and devour its unfortunate inhabitants. The end credit of the film is simply the end with a question mark suggesting that maybe the story wasn't over, and maybe there would be more incidents involving the blob. That question mark can now be answered. It was the end of the film, and there is no such thing as a blob which will invade us from outer space and devour any of us. However, I know that all of us at Jogcast Central felt a strange frisson of fear when hearing of scientists' attempts to understand the origins of giant blobs in outer space. An international team, headed by Jim Geach from the Centre of Astrophysics Research of the University of Hertfordshire, have used data from the Atacama Large Millimetre Array, ALMA, alongside data from the multi-unit spectroscopic explorer instrument mounted on the Very Large Telescope in northern Chile, to gain an understanding of Lyman Alpha Blob 1, Lab 1, one of 30 Lyman Alpha Blobs discovered since the year 2000. Lab 1 is one of the largest structures in the universe, being 400,000 light-years in diameter. It is 11.5 billion light-years away, so we're seeing it at an early age in the life of the universe. The radiation from the blob is originally from the ultraviolet part of the spectrum, but this is cosmologically redshifted to the visible part of the spectrum. Now, it's surprising that an object made of diffuse clouds of hydrogen should be so bright that they're visible at such large distances. The team have been trying to understand the mechanisms that led to the emission of such large amounts of energy. Now any astrophysicist worth their salt, when faced with huge amounts of energy, will normally say supermassive black holes. And in this case they will be right and wrong. Early X-ray observations of Lab 1 did show a supermassive black hole at the centre of a large active galaxy which is embedded in a bubble of hydrogen gas. 
Observations from ALBA have since shown at least two large galaxies surrounded by smaller galaxies. At some point in their future, and our past, these galaxies will combine to form a giant elliptical galaxy. All of these are regions of extraordinary star formation. Over 100 times as many stars are being formed in these regions compared to the Milky Way. Computer models lead the team to suggestion that the radiation from these young hot stars, which is principally in the ultraviolet region, is scattered by the hydrogen in the clouds surrounding the galaxies. The radiation from these clouds is polarised, and the team used this finding to confirm the predictions made by the model. When we look at Lab 1, we're looking at the building blocks of the formation of a large, massive elliptical galaxy. Galaxy formation has been an issue for cosmologists for many years, and this provides another piece in that jigsaw puzzle. Sadly, Jim Geach's team has not been able to confirm or deny that the cloud tastes or smells of strawberry. In December 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope spent 10 days taking a picture of a small portion of space in the Ursa Major constellation. The Hubble Deep Field image covered a tiny part of the night sky, just 2.6 arc minutes on each side, and it revealed around 3,000 galaxies. When combined with the ultra-deep field images, Astronomers were able to conclude that the number of galaxies in the observable universe is huge, over 200 billion galaxies. Christopher Conslice and his team at the University of Nottingham have applied techniques to these images to report that there are now 10 times more galaxies than originally thought. One of the new techniques was to build a three-dimensional model of the universe from the original images. They then applied computer models to the galaxies at different distances to infer the presence of smaller, fainter galaxies. From this they arrived at an estimated 2 trillion galaxies. This has gone some way towards solving a problem raised by the original deep field research. The projected 2 billion galaxies from the initial research were not enough to account for the predicted mass of the universe. 2 trillion is a step in the direction expected by theorists, but there is still a discrepancy that the team are investigating. The deep field images show galaxies 13 billion light-years away. This displays the galaxies that they were 13 billion years ago. Since that time, these small, faint galaxies will have merged to form the universe with the fewer galaxies that we now see in our immediate surroundings. Astrophysicists are now waiting for the launch and deployment of Hubble's follow-up, the James Webb Space Telescope. This instrument should be able to see even further back to the beginning of the universe to a time when these galaxies were being formed. Thanks for that, Ian. Now Charlie interviews Dr. Laura Spittler about a f- repeating fast radio burst. Today I'm joined by Dr. Laura Spittler from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn, in Germany. Welcome to the Jogcast. Thank you very much. And this isn't your first time on a podcast. No. Nope, nope. It is your first time on the Jogcast. It is the first time on the Jogcast, that's right. Could you tell about the other podcasts that you are? Uh, were once on. Yeah, I uh, did my PhD at Cornell University in upstate New York, and we used to have a, job, or a podcast <laughs> um, associated with our Ask an Astronomer website, which yeah. unfortunately has fizzled. But, uh, mm. Yeah, we've been quite lucky. Ours hasn't fizzled. Yeah. Um, but it started in a similar way with an Ask yeah. an Astronomer. So exactly. it's funny how these things work out. So I'm really excited to be conducting this interview because uh, one of the facets of your research is close to my own heart. Um, and that is fast radio bursts, or fast radio transients in general. And I know your name, I know your surname very well, and I've had to quote it quite a few times in my lit review at the beginning of my PhD, and that sort of stuff. So 
you're one of my role models in finding fast radio bursts. Um, could you tell us a little bit, firstly, about what fast radio bursts are? Yeah, so fast radio bursts are what they sound like. So they're very short duration radio pulses. Um, it's not a perfect analogy, but the way I like to sort of describe it is you may remember like back in the day, if you put your phone next to a speaker, sometimes your cell phone, you get this sort of noise now and again. You imagine, so what's happening is your cell phone is sending out very short radio pulses. It's trying to connect with a cell tower somewhere and it's actually interfering with your speakers. And so you're hearing then that, that radio pulse as a short pulse of sound. Mm, sometimes you get that before you even pick up the phone, before you get the text yes, message. Yes, exactly. If you hear a text me- or if text message is coming in, then your phone is a big noise. And uh, one of the ways that I've sometimes thought about fast radio bursts is um, the, like very short single pulses from pulsars, but yeah. possibly extremely bright. Could you give us a, a little sort of, how are they different to pulsar pulses? Or? So they're different from pulsar pulses in that up until recently... We, for every new object which has emitted an FRB, we've only seen a single pulse. And although people have looked for hundreds of hours at that position in the sky, it's never repeated. Um, that's very different than pulsar pulses, because we know that pulsars are rotating neutron stars, and they're, when they're, the beam of the radio emission crosses the line of sight to the Earth, then we see usually another pulse. Um, the other way that FRB pulses are different is they have a much higher dispersion measure, generally speaking. Yeah. Could you um, give us a, a description of what a dispersion measure actually is? Yeah. So dispersion measure is, um, again, I like to go back to an, an analogy we know in our day-to-day life, which is white light going through a prism. The reason that white light, when it goes through a prism, gets turned into rainbow colors is that we call the index of refraction in glass for optical light varies on frequency or wavelength. So we see that then with our, with our eyes as color. Um, it turns out that the interstellar medium for radio wavelengths is sort of like a prism. So that means that the speed of light actually depends on the frequency of the radiation. And it, it works in the way that the higher frequencies travel slightly faster than the lower frequencies. And the result is that the higher frequencies arrive on the Earth before the lower frequencies do. And the difference in time, or in other words, the, the, the amount, the magnitude of this effect just simply depends on the number of electrons between the Earth and the source. So the more electrons the larger this, and how, this delay. How do you go about observing this this dispersion delay? What do you actually see when you're looking for, well, a pulse from a, a pulsar or from a fast radio burst? So we, you said we, you know, we have a radio telescope, we collect our data, and what we want is we want to see this sort of sweep and frequency. Um, it follows a very specific pattern, which we can then search for within our um, processing pipelines, and then later measure quite accurately. So if there, was, if there was no dispersion at all, you'd expect to see basically a straight line. That's right. If you, if you saw no dispersion at all, all of the frequencies would arrive at the same time and you just get a single blip. But then when there's dispersion, you see uh, different things. That's right. And um, th- there's, a, there's an important point about uh, the dispersion measure of FRBs which you made, which, which was that it's, it's a lot larger than the dispersion measures we see for, well, any pulsars, really. Why is that an exciting point? So, so it's exciting, an exciting point because with the exceptions of the pulsars and the Magellanic clouds, all of the pulsars we know are in our own galaxy. And therefore, all of the electrons that are causing this dispersion measure are sort of within our galaxy. Um, the interesting fact, an interesting property for FRBs is that their dispersion measures are much larger than we can expect for uh, our galaxy. And so that we have to get the electrons from somewhere. So the argument then goes that they must be outside of our galaxy, and the electrons have to come from then the, the space between galaxies, so we call that the intergalactic medium, 
or from the host galaxy of the the source that generated the FRB in the first place. And is this why people are so excited about finding these FRBs? Because um, we see light from other galaxies all the time. We we have the Hubble telescope and uh, we see that in the optical. So why why is observing them in the radio more exciting than that? Why what can we take from FRBs that we couldn't do from regular light? So in much the same way that um, the initial evidence suggests that FRBs, not only do they come from outside of our own galaxy, they actually could potentially come from cosmologically significant distances. So what, what do you mean by cosmologically significant? So in the, to use the sort of standard lingo, sort of red shifts of sort of 0.1-ish to sort of 1, which works out to being distances of hundreds of millions to a billion light years. So you're saying a significantly far back That's in time. Right. So it means it's a significant fraction of sort of, yeah, back in time, if you will, since the, t- towards the early universe, but it also means that we have, we have a, it's so the reason, if this, if this turns out to be true, this is interesting because not only do FRBs represent some sort of very energetic phenomenon that can produce these energetic radio bursts that we can see across these huge distances. And they'd have to be really, really And they'd really have to bright. be really energetic, that's right. But much like pulsars, we can actually use them, hopefully, in the future as a tool to probe the stuff that's in between. Um, so the you're looking for us. this matter that's, that's between right. us. You're looking for this matter, in, in particular, this, the matter that's in between the galaxies, the intergalactic medium. And lots of this stuff is missing at the moment. We can't really measure it too well. That's right. It's very difficult to measure because it's cold and just doesn't interact much. But these FRBs would be an ideal way of probing sort of these lines of sight. And as we build up a larger population of FRBs into the future, we should be able to probe lots of lines of sight and understand sort of what the IGM, so the, the, the basic properties of the IGM, its density, turbulence, etc. And um, the uh, the sort of field of research of fast radio bursts, it seems to have been coming along in leaps and bounds over the past few re- years, really. It's uh, It's not been long since the first one was discovered. Could you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, so the first one was discovered in 2007, and it was discovered in sort of survey, uh, pulsar survey data near the uh, small Magellanic Cloud. And with it is they decided to reprocess the data using a slightly different algorithm than they originally had done. And this extremely bright burst just popped up with a really high dispersion measure. So it was almost a sort of serendipitous thing. Yeah, it was really, it was this idea that you, you know, you have the data, even if you think you've always you've looked at it and searched it in every possible way somebody comes up with a new idea or a new algorithm you run it through again new things new things pop out and for a long long time that was how we were finding fast radio bursts was just coming through loads of really old data that's right yep um but now it's moving along a bit and we're uh we're looking we're almost looking in real time yep there are several surveys now that um, have the capability to actually identify these FRBs in real time, which is very important to progress the, f- the, the field because then you can do rapid follow-up. You can trigger other telescopes, both sort of gamma-ray telescopes or X-ray or optical, but also other radio telescopes like interferometers, for example, which allow you to pinpoint the position more accurately than the telescopes that you use then to and find the FRB in, in the first place. Yeah, and that yeah, might exactly. shed some light on what's actually causing these things. Um, how many of them have we seen now? How many have we seen? Yeah, uh, the number keeps getting more and more fuzzy, to my knowledge. Like, yeah, immediately it... after, every time you found one, a paper would be published. But now it seems like there are a few, few floating around which haven't been. So yeah, so there, there's always this, this this span of time between when you find it, do the detailed analysis, and actually publish it. Mm. So there are 17 in the published literature. And there are probably a handful that are, will be out soon, I suspect. And you've actually uh, published one, well, well, should I say one or should I say more than one? Um, <laughs> could you tell question. us a story about, yeah, about your first radio burst, which is called FRB 121102? 
That's right. So F- tw- FRB 121102 was the first radio bur- fast radio burst to be discovered with the Air Sea Boat Observatory. Which is significant in itself, actually. Mm-hmm. It was significant because up until that point, all of the FRBs had been found with the Parkes Telescope in Australia. And although we were, at this point, pretty sure that they were, in fact, astrophysical, it was an important step to have a second independent telescope uh, discover an yeah. FRB. Because obviously, if you, if you only detect them in one telescope, there's always the chance that it could be uh, an issue with the telescope. That's example. right. There's some some very strange man-made phenomena that happens to look a lot like. Mm. But because like having having you know a second telescope, and now we've actually had a third, um, actually a fourth that have have detect- detected these. We now are yeah, we had um, Emily Petroff on the show about a year ago talking about peritons, which were yeah. uh, a signal that looks suspiciously like fast radio bursts, but weren't. Yep. And for the longest time, no one knew what was causing them. And it turned out to be microwave ovens. Microwave ovens. Um, so how do we know that fast radio bursts aren't microwave ovens? What's the difference between peritons and fast radio bursts? So there are a couple of differences. Probably the most important, in my opinion, is that FRBs are always found in a single pixel of the radio receiver, whereas the peritons are always detected in many. And that's that's... Just a simple optical phenomenon. It's basic optics that tells you if the source is nearby, which the microwaves were, mm. that they will be detected in multiple. I wonder if, if you hold a light up to a camera and a phone, you can see multiple uh, flarings of that light. If it's a, a sort of a point source light in the camera, is that the same sort of idea? This is just me going like that because I remembered. We can cut this bit. It's fine. Um, <laughs> no idea. Sorry. Yeah. No, because yeah, when you it's hold a up, field effect. But I don't yeah. Know when you when you have because most camera phones now have a double lens, don't they? Um, I think. Um, and then if you hold the light at the right stage, you can see multiple pinpricks of. Oh, uh, what's that? Okay, never mind. That's just a random rambling. Yeah. Uh, we can cut that bit. Uh, so could you tell us uh, how did you first find this radio burst? Was this one that you observed in real time, or was it in old data? No, this one was observed in what we call archival data. So through the P Alpha Survey, this is the Pulsar Alpha Survey, which is undergoing um, underway, excuse me, at Arecibo. And we are looking. The primary goal is actually to look for pulsars in the galactic plane. But the data for looking for pulsars is also ideal for looking for fast radio bursts. So I went ahead and processed the data with this different algorithm to try to find fast radio bursts. Um, I found one, and this was published several years ago. And so it was the first telescope other than, other than Parkes to find one, so it was pretty exciting. Um, but, you know, in science, it's always important to follow up and be diligent about your results. And um, so we went ahead and we asked for follow-up observations of this burst, again with Arecibo. Um, and we did those in the middle of last year. And then we got around to looking at the data sort of last fall, and we found an additional 10 bursts from the source. And this is this is really significant. Yeah, which was kind of... <laughs> This is the first time that one has been observed to repeat. That's right. Uh, very quickly, could you give us a, a brief idea of how big is the area of sky that you're looking at when you follow up this fast radio burst? Because um, one of the big questions about FRBs is where do they actually come from? Can you pinpoint them to, say, a host galaxy if they're coming from really far away? Have you been able to do that with this FRB as you've been able to look back? and see it repeating. No, we still don't have enough positional precision to locate it in a galaxy. Um, that's something we're working very hard on, and the fact that the source, that we now know it repeats, actually makes our job easier, because mm. we just... You can pinpoint it. Exactly. We, we, we go to sort of interferometers, which are, you said, are much better at pinpointing sources 
than the sort of large single dishes that we use to discover them in the first place. Um, the problem is it doesn't repeat that often, so、mm. you have to be very patient. And is there any pattern to it repeating that you've seen? Can you predict yet, like pulsars, when it's next going to go off? No, we can't yet predict when it's going to go off. But our initial observations suggest that it's very episodic.、Mm. So often we get a number of pulses in a short period of time.、Um, the most extreme case so far is six within about ten minutes, and then we'll observe for weeks and weeks and weeks, for maybe a couple hours a you know a couple hours a week, and then we wait and wait and wait, and then we finally get another sort of one or maybe a little cluster, and then we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and then we get maybe another one, and so it's a very Requires a certain amount of patience, but still, it's really exciting. Do you know why it is that only your FRB has been found to repeat? Do you think that we could have missed repetitions by other telescopes or by other FRBs? Or so there are a couple possibilities.、Mm. One is Arecibo is significantly more sensitive than Parkes, for example, by at least a factor of ten, and so it may be that Arecibo simply has the ability to see the weaker pulses, whereas Parkes isn't. And in fact, if you sort of look at the flexes of the brightnesses of our bursts, Parkes would have easily seen one and maybe a second. So that's a possibility that Arecibo is simply significantly more sensitive.、Um, another possibility is this source is, just happens to re- repeat more often、mm. than the others. Possibly, who knows?、Um, the other possibility is that there's there's more than one population that generates these fast radio bursts. Yeah, what do you think about that? Because、um... It seems to me that there are well almost more theories about what cause FRBs than there are known FRBs, and some of them are really exciting. Could you give us a, a few examples of what these、uh, what these emission mechanisms could be, and then sort of maybe use them to elaborate on why this repeating one has narrowed that down, possibly, or not, if there are multiple sources. Yeah, so there, as you say, there are more theories than, than bursts、um, in the literature right now. Um, and there are sort of what I call sort of relatively mundane theories, which involve objects that we know to exist, but we don't necessarily know that they produce fast radio bursts.、Mm. So this would include things like merging binary neutron stars or merging white dwarf neutron star system. And the idea is, in sort of the last stages of the merger, you get sort of a quick. Magnetic fields interact in some complicated way and need a quick burst. And then it bursts out with energy. Then you have some, you have a whole range of sort of more exciting or interesting, if you will, ideas which involve cosmic strings、mm. or I've heard quark stars、uh, mentioned yeah, quark, and quark novae, I think. white holes as well. White holes. So、yes. some really exotic stuff. Yeah, and these, of course, are, are not only not only are we unsure whether these sources could produce an FRB, we don't even know if the sources necessarily exist, exist yet. Yeah. <laughs> But it encourages everyone's imaginations, loads,、yeah. because you、yeah. can dream up all of these things, and then if that happens to be true, there's your Nobel Prize right there. There you go. But most of these have one thing in common, which is that they shouldn't really repeat. That's right. So、yeah. the ones I've listed, I've mentioned so far, are broadly speaking,、um, involve some sort of cataclysmic explosion, which would destroy the the objects either in the merger or or whatnot.、Um, there's another class which in, does allow the possibility of repeats. And broadly speaking, that involves some sort of pulsar phenomenon.、Um, for example, we call giant pulses.、Um, the best example in our galaxy is the Crab Pulsar in the Crab Nebula, which regularly pr- emits these sort of special kind of pulses that are extremely bright. How much brighter than a regular Crab Pulsar pulse are they? 
I believe the standard th- cutoff threshold, so the minimum, is sort of a factor of ten-ish. But we've never we've never sort of seen a, a fall off or sort of the edge of the the high end, right? These things have a very large range of. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't we still don't know fluxes. quite how yes, right they can go. So if you if you wait longer and longer, eventually you could see one that's even brighter than what we've seen before potentially. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that you get these extremely extremely rare pulses that happen to be so bright that you could see them at great distances. And how bright would these? have to be at these distances because if you don't quite know where the fast radio burst is coming from, I guess you don't quite know the distance. So how can you sort of get a, a ballpark guess on how bright at the source these uh, these bursts were in the first place? So I don't have specific numbers off the top of my head. Um, I can flip it around and say that, again, using the crab as a sort of standard candle, if you will, the model, and you ask just how far away could you move the crab and sort of still detect the brightest pulses that we've we've determined from the crab and we have however many decades that we've been observing the crab and it's quite a big distance and it's mm. you know, 100, 100 million light years or so so it's a possibility and you can also you can also flip around the dispersion measure and use that to sort of guess at a distance that's right source yeah that's the idea is we use a dispersion measure to sort of give us a rough idea of what the distance is if we can make an once we make a reasonable assumption for what the density of the electrons along the line of sight is then we can flip it and use that to get a get a rough distance so are you are you still looking at frb 12 11 02 are you are you still looking back uh once in a while to see if it's going to repeat again oh yes yeah we have several different telescopes we put in lots of proposals to continue to monitor it of course with arecibo it's i think still the best mm. because it's just simply so sensitive yeah um i know that here in manchester we've done some looking but we haven't seen any pulses yet that's right it's unfortunate it's sad okay so the last question i actually asked you well, we talked about you doing more looking for this this burst, and I said that sadly the level hadn't found anything. Um, so let's go from there. So what what is the future of looking for fast radio bursts? What do we really want to find in order to do some good science with them? Yeah. So the the future is is first of all continuing the the real time detections and quick follow up. I think that's really important. Um, and then pushing to larger field of views. And more sensitivity. Mm. It's also really important. And uh, yeah, the field of view is the, the, as you said before, it's the killer thing. Because the reason that Parks has detected so many is because because they have simply larger pixels. Yeah, and um, so they they cover a bigger chunk of the sky at, at one and time. So with really rare events, they're just more likely yep. to find these things. But um, are you the single uh, highest? burst to person ratio at the moment i don't know quite know how to ask that have you detected the most bursts out of anyone or does this only count as one burst well it depends if you count this as one burst or mm. many bursts i personally think it's one burst it's it's one source ah but you're being modest but it's many bursts so <laughs> certainly i don't know so no, i wouldn't give me the highest um so thank you very much for your time quickly before we go though we had a uh, a question from a listener before we found out that we were getting you on the Jogcast, actually, um, I was worried that I'd have to answer this question, and now I can put it to you instead. Uh, they sent us one on... Uh, Rock Howard uh, sent us a question on Twitter about your paper and about these uh, this repeating fast radio burst. Um, and he asked, could the FRB actually be a gravitationally lensed fast radio burst? So could it be one that we've seen many times? Uh, I was wondering if you could give us a, a very quick spiel on gravitational lensing and then answer Rock's question for us. Sure. So a gravitational lens is something that we get thanks to gravity and general relativity. So the idea is you have some very dense, massive object. So for example, a galaxy cluster sitting out there. And 
if you're lucky, and there's something sitting right behind the lens, say another galaxy, that further away galaxy can be what we call lensed by the gravitational lens. What that means is that the light doesn't pass straight through the lens. It's in- Instead, it is sort of bent around. And it takes a different path. It takes a different path, that's right. So it takes, instead of going straight through, it takes a longer path, actually. And what that path is, is determined by the matter that's sitting there. And this is basically what, what general relativity taught mm. us. And so what you can see then is, for example, one galaxy will be lensed multiple times. And so you get these beautiful pictures from, say, for example, Hubble or whatever, where you have these, these beautiful Einstein rings of galaxies being lensed into different places on the sky. So what your listener may be referring to is recently there was a supernova that was actually seen through a gravitational lens. And here, because a supernova is a, is a temporal event, something that changes in time, we'll be able to follow the supernova through different lenses over different, over different time frames. So you can see it once and then you can they see, see it again. You know, and a couple years later, you see it again exactly. And the reason for that is because the supernova light is taking different paths, mm. some of which are longer than others. The ones that are longer then take a longer time for it to get to us, um, which is really cool. But unfortunately, it's probably not what's happened for FRB for a number of reasons. Um, one is that these different paths would require going through different numbers of electrons. The longer the path, the more the electrons. The more the ele- number of electrons along the path, the higher the dispersion measure. So you'd expect to see a, a pattern between the later pulses and a higher dispersion. That's measure. right, because they had would have had to go travel farther and through more electrons to get to us. And we don't see that. They all have a similar dispersion measure. Um, also, the the spectra of these, we didn't talk about that, the spectra of these bursts are very, very weird. Yeah, they're, they're very all very unusual. different. Mm. And I suspect that we would you would see sort of the same sort of basic spectral shape if it were actually the same burst occurring multiple times. And they actually, among themselves, they look quite different from burst to burst. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, hopefully that answers your question, Rob. Uh, we don't usually have Ask an Astronomer tied in with our interview. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Hopefully we'll uh, have you on the Jawcast again at some point. I'd love to. Thanks for that, Charlie. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits which we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Uh, So I guess I'm going first with my odd and end. I'm going to be talking about uh, something which which is uh, pretty topical at the moment. Um, So I was doing some reading yesterday um, about the U.S. general election, which uh, I'm sure you've heard about if you haven't been living under a rock. Um, So the two candidates who are running are Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And uh, I spent some time yesterday learning about what their policies on space exploration uh, and NASA are likely to be. Just to kind of paint a bit of a picture for you, the way things are going in the States with uh, with space exploration and with NASA, well, um, uh, you may or may not be aware um, that the two big projects NASA is kind of working on right now are um, the SLS rocket, which is the Space Launch System rocket, um, which is kind of a heavy payload rocket that's designed to launch big things up into space, um, namely the Orion spacecraft, uh, and those two things are in development right now. Um, the SLS follows a previous project that was kind of similar called Constellation, uh, which was cancelled under the Obama administration. I guess at the moment, things have been changing a lot um, with regard to with regard to research into space travel uh, in the US, I suppose with the advent of... Um, private, with the involvement of private companies in developing um, space travel technology. So, for example, um, you've got Blue Origin and you've got Elon Musk with his SpaceX, uh, which, as you know, I love to talk about and have often blathered on about in previous odds and ends. Neither candidate seems to have talked much at all about space 
during their during their campaigns. Um, it really hasn't come up. Um, as you all know, there's been lots of other uh, very controversial and um, divisive issues that have been raised, but space hasn't really come into it. So I've had a little look uh, at the kind of the different ideas that the two different candidates have have talked about on both sides. So for Hillary Clinton. Um, she's mentioned space travel only once on her campaign, and that was while she was visiting um, a, a company in Detroit called Futuramic, which used to make car parts and now uh, has moved on to supplying um, uh, spacecraft parts to various different people. Um, she's kind of trotted out the usual party line of, oh, of course, we'll give NASA full support and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, she hasn't made any very strong statements about um, any changes to policy that she might make. Um, however, um, so one of her, um, science advisors, uh, a man called Neil Lane, who was, who was an advisor to her, um, for some years and I think is currently still privately advising her about science. Um, uh, I know that his views about space travel are that a good idea would be to, um, focus space travel, uh, on going to the moon. And he believes that from there, you could then launch further space travel out into the solar system, but that the moon um, is a good starting point. And so I know that's his opinion on it. And I am aware that Hillary Clinton, the impression I'm getting is that she would probably want to um, look at using NASA, not just for space travel and research, but as a tool for diplomacy, that there'd be an opportunity there for cooperation with China and Russia and other countries. Um, and it's in the interests of a lot of other countries to um, to develop space travel to the moon as well. So that might be um, the approach that she would take. And I know that um, one of the things that made Constellation easier to kill um, for the Obama administration was that it was quite exclusionary. It was just US research and there was very little collaboration with any other country. So uh, the impression I got from reading about Hillary Clinton's policies in space would be that she would be kind of trying to kill two birds with one stone with it in a sense that she'd be looking at you know researching space travel but also building bonds with other countries now donald trump on the other hand diplomacy doesn't seem to be an issue that he's very interested in um uh from or certainly not with china he's come up with a few conflicting statements on on u.s space research and on nasa he's uh alternated between saying that nasa is great and saying that the u.s has uh, what was his quote? Um, that they have the space program of a third world country. I think his other line on this is that he's more concerned with filling potholes on Earth than sending rockets to the moon. <laughs> Again, that's a very typical Donald Trump stance, I think. Um, but what he uh, does see himself as is a champion of private companies. And he would be really behind the advancement of SpaceX and other such companies uh, that are private, that are not using taxpayer money, and he wants less taxpayer spending, obviously, on uh, on space travel and research. Um, another thing he could potentially do is um, cut NASA's Earth science budget because he doesn't think that global warming is real. So a lot of the things he just said are actually very typical Republican stances in general. That's right. And, That's what and, I understand. And uh, a lot of that would also be sort of typical for the stance for the Conservative Party in this country and probably for other fiscal right-wing yeah. uh, conservative parties yeah, uh, exactly. across the uh, developed world where they want to spend less money in general. Yeah. 
they want to privatize services. Exactly. Conservatives in this country have been like pushing forward privatization of all sorts of services in this country. So privatizing space exploration would seem to make sense for the Republican Party. So I wonder if Donald Trump just didn't really have these ideas himself. Exactly. I mean, I think, uh, honestly, I don't think either candidate has put a lot of thought into NASA. Well, the other thing to point out, too, is that uh, astronomy is a pure science. There are some uh, things that come out of astronomy, particularly in terms of detector and receiver technology, uh, which have everyday applications. But for the most part, astronomy research is a pure research. And industry is generally not going to sponsor pure research no. activities. Um, well, you know, in the interest of wrapping it up, um, we've got, what is it, 12 days until the U.S. election. So, we'll, so uh, it remains to be seen who, who gets elected and uh, and what happens with regard to NASA. Well, I'll be watching with interest. So, Jake, what do you have for us? Well, my odd and end for this week actually started out on Facebook, of all places, on social media. I was browsing a couple of days back, as I do, and I saw in the little trending bar off to the side, trending Planet Nine. I found that a couple of Caltech astronomers had made a press release a couple of days back, claiming that this hypothetical Planet Nine was responsible for a tilt in the sun's axis of rotation. It's off by about six degrees. There have been various explanations put forward for that over the years. And now this new one is the presence of this Planet Nine somewhere out in the far solar system. And we've actually had a couple of people writing into the Jodcast, hearing about this press release and wondering what we think of it. So my personal opinion on this story is... I'm still sceptical about the existence of this possible planet. And the main reason for my scepticism, apart from just having healthy scepticism as a scientist should, but the idea of a planet nine, a planet out past Neptune, is not new. It's been kicking around in one form or another since the 1830s. And it didn't go away when Neptune was discovered in 1846. Lots of people in the years since then have proposed that there are one or more giant planets out past Neptune, somewhere in the solar system. Some people even went out and tried to find them. I think... Wait, out, out to the edge of the solar system? Ah, uh, no, their, <laughs> their efforts were strictly Earth-based. Okay, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah. this, this is before NASA's time. Right, right, okay. Yeah, but I think the most famous astronomer, or at least famous in the historical sense, was Percival Lowell. He set up an observatory in the 1900s to try and find Planet X, as he called it. He wanted to find Planet X. That was going to be his big break, so he was going to be a credible scientist. And unfortunately, he died before his Planet X was ever found. God love us, that's terribly sad. (laughs) But... But his observatory was responsible for discovering Pluto in 1930. What a disappointment to poor Percival Lowell. He must be spinning in his grave. It's like, oh, I went out looking for this massive planet and instead we found this tiny little rock that got demoted a few yeah. years ago. Well, they originally <laughs> thought it was much, much larger. And then over yeah. the decades, it began getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, like their hopes and dreams. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what spurred them to keep on looking. 
And in that study, they were first looking at the orbits of Kuiper Belt objects. So that's a collection oh. of thousands of small bodies past Neptune. Including Pluto. Including Pluto. Now includes Pluto. <laughs> yes. And they found a clustering of a few of these objects, both in arguments of their perihelion, when they were furthest away from the sun, and physical clustering as well. And what they basically did was they ran a load of simulations and they concluded that this clustering was very unlikely to have arisen through chance. Therefore, they went on to conclude that this system must have a, a dynamical origin, such as a shepherding giant planet. Huh. So there are multiple physical phenomena that this hypothetical Planet Nine could explain. Ties it all up very neatly, really, doesn't it? It Why does. Why are you still sceptical? Because there's no observational evidence for it yet. Right. That's a good, I, good, good I would reason. also ask, That's how good... large does this Planet Nine have to be uh, to actually uh, account for uh, the variations the in the tilt of mm. the sun? The current number they're looking at now is a body of something approaching 10 Earth masses. Okay. At Not a distance that of several hundred AU. And in a highly eccentric orbit as well, so that E value is going to be at least 0.5, so quite elliptical. Huh. That's actually not that big. Yeah. It's um, much more... I was expecting something several times the size of Jupiter, but something 10 times the size of planet Earth could plausibly be out there, and uh, hmm. people who work on planetary astronomy keep on finding these sort of dinky dwarf planet things out very large orbital radii so it seems I mean if they're finding those you'd think they could find this big one too well it's it's very hard to find those things too it depends on how reflective it is as well if it's quite a dark body oh since yes. I come from an infrared background I would think of emission yeah so yeah, well it depends we, we don't know what this hypothetical planet 9 might emit in well, since I come from oh. a radio background, I'm thinking, is anyone on this planet using their mobile phones? <laughs> well, if they were, you would be able to find I out. I would indeed. You'd hear about it here first. <laughs> no, I've, I've spent so much time removing asteroids from infrared images, uh, particularly mid-infrared images, and those are like asteroids much closer to Earth. That would just expect that uh, if you have some sort of solar, solid body further out in the solar system that it could potentially be picked up in some sort of infrared or submillimeter emission. So it could be detected by Alma. You may also need to know where it is to be able to find it in the first place. Because exactly. Some, you know, it's kind of hard to do a uh, wide field search without using a space telescope and there aren't any plans at the moment to launch a wide field Submillimeter space telescope, for example, uh, which is going to map the entire sky, and there are no plans for that type of observations from the ground either. So it seems as though, um, you know, get it, since getting observational evidence seems nearly impossible, <laughs> this other evidence that we've got to go on um, would make me keep an open mind. Although I respect your uh, healthy skepticism, Jake. <laughs> yeah. So my sort of final words for this odd and end would be. Stay sceptical, but keep looking up. You never know what's out there. Look down sometimes, because you might trip. <laughs> you might it. find money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I found two pounds on the bus the other day. It was awesome. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it was good. 
Oh, so, Naomi, what would you like to talk about? Okay, my odds and ends for this week is planet hunting. So, there's a team of French astronomers who are being led by Pierre Cavella of the CNRS and are predicting a very rare gravitational lensing event sent to occur in 2028. So, they are using both new and archived data obtained from a range of ESO telescopes. And this event will provide a very ideal opportunity to look for evidence of a planet around a nearby star. So the star they are trying to look at is um, Alpha Centauri A. And one of the most exciting alignments uh, predicted by this study is between the most massive star in the Alpha Centauri pair, that is the Alpha Centauri A, and the distant background star, which is called S5. It is a red giant, and... In May 2028, there will be a strong chance that the light from S5 will create an Einstein ring around Alpha Century A, which is observable with the ESO telescopes. This will provide a unique opportunity to look for planets and low-mass objects. So um, it's quite yeah, interesting. That's cool. So yeah. uh, um, how, how exactly would they, if there were planets uh, in orbit around Alpha Centauri A, what would they be looking for? What, what would they be looking for in the... Yeah, they look for deviations in the Einstein circle. So cool. if the the light bends, yeah. they look to the Einstein circle. And then if there's any change, they'll see use that to determine whether there's a planetary right. object there or a low-mass object. That's, uh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, for me, Sounds it's cool. interesting because it combines two areas of astronomy that I don't know much about, uh, planet hunting and gravitational lensing. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know much about them, but they're very interesting. Um, yeah, sounds cool. Yeah, it really does. It really does. So I'm waiting for 2028. Yeah, exactly. What is that? Uh, it's 12 years, years away. From now. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, what will we all be doing in 12 years? <laughs> yeah. Very sadly, too, there will be not only the 2016 election, but three more presidential <laughs> Elections. Oh goodness! Oh, well, provided the apocalypse hasn't happened between now and then, I'll. Uh... Which could <laughs> well, I want happen to wait depending for on who's elected. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I have just one very silly question. You said that the lens star is named S five. Yeah. What kind of a name is that for a star? Because I'm used to stars having names either well, like Alpha Centauri. Or having names which are like much lengthier catalog numbers like HD 105605. Actually, this is a nickname, so I guess we have to go with that. Okay, and then finally with me, I was going to talk about a couple of personal experiences where I was actually targeted for fraud. So the first time was related to a conference that I went to in September. So I attended the half a decade of Alma conference in Indian Wells, California. So I was contacted back in August by phone. People called me in my office and uh, said that they were calling about my hotel reservation, although, although the phone connection wasn't that great. I tried explaining to them that uh, I'd actually uh, booked a hotel room in a different hotel, and so I wasn't that concerned with using uh, the official conference hotel, and so I didn't really have to worry about like uh, changing my reservations. And well, the other odd thing about this phone call too was that they called 11 o'clock UK time, which is equivalent to three o'clock in the morning California time. Ah. 
So I sent an email to conference organizers. Uh, a few days later, they then sent out an email saying uh, they were actually being targeted by people promulgating a fraud. Uh, and the way the fraud is supposed to work, which didn't work with me, was that the fraudsters call uh, people who they know are going to be at a specific conference because they're listed publicly on the conference participation list. And they can find the people's phone numbers by just looking up their academic credentials. Oh my goodness, we're so easy to find online. Yes. Crazy. (laughs) So they found that I was uh, listed at this conference, found that I was listed as staff at the University of Manchester, went to University of Manchester phone book, looked up my phone number, and then called me and said that uh, they were calling about my reservations at the conference hotel. After that, they say that to get the discounted conference rate, you need to cancel your hotel reservations and rebook through them. Ah. And so you give them your identifying information and your credit card information. What you're supposed to think that they're going to do is that they're going to rebook you at a discounted rate. What they actually do is they charge your credit card a large amount of money and do nothing. Uh, for people who fall for this scam, what happens is they end up with losing a lot of money and, and their hotel booking. And they lose their hotel booking. Probably very upset if they arrive at the hotel and discover that uh, their hotel room's not waiting for them. Absolutely. What and, a nightmare. And I managed to avoid all of this just by uh, having booked in a different hotel across the street. Do you think so, you would have fallen for it? If, so uh, did people fall for this? People do fall for these oh, types okay. of scams, but they're also uh, uh, websites not... Very great websites, but there are websites uh, out there which do mention this style of scam and even mention the uh, same specific company or pseudo company which called me. Oh, uh, that's scary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what scares me is just how easily they found you. I yeah. mean, which makes perfect sense once you point it out. I mean, you're of course your name is on the website and anyone can see it and then anyone can... And your number is there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my God, that's crazy. Well, well done for uh, for avoiding it. Do you think you would have fallen for it if you uh, if you had been actually staying at the hotel they were talking about? I'm not certain. Yeah, because you're pretty, you're pretty skeptical too. <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty skeptical. That and it just seemed odd. Yeah, well, like you said, the, the call coming at a funny time and the hotel going through a tunnel and all those things, they're kind of a red flags really aren't they there's a discount <laughs> why would, would they wait for you to be there at a hotel and say oh we have a discount so yeah, pay yeah. 10% less I think I also would have been hesitant to give out credit card information over the phone. Well, absolutely. That's something yeah. that's kind of drilled into us from the from the second we, we start to have credit cards, really, isn't it? Don't give your credit card number. No yeah, never. I also don't know if they would have redirected me to, like, their website or something like that yeah. either. But that, yeah. that's. But in any case, I didn't get that far because the phone call cut out. Yeah. Well, that's uh, lucky for you. Yeah. yeah, lucky for you. So... So then after that, a couple weeks later, I got contacted by a different company. This one isn't quite fraudulent so far as I can tell, but it looked kind of suspicious and I didn't go along with it. Uh, it did look similar to what other people have reported on the web as uh, something, while technically legal, is really in the gray area between valid and fraudulent uh, back in July, I put out 
a press release through the University of Manchester uh, related to uh, my ALMA research on the Spiral Galaxy NGC 4945. The brief description of the story is that I found much more star formation in the center of this galaxy than people had previously, or than people would have previously thought was there based on observing this in the infrared. And so it's so obscured by dust that the dust obscures its own emission, which is rather exotic. Uh, and there could be lots of other galaxies like that. In any case, I'm not going to talk that much more about the press release, but then what happened afterwards was I was contacted by a company uh, which said they were interested in writing a two-page article. Now, this was a magazine which I hadn't heard of before, mm. uh, but I began doing some research online, and I discovered that other publications, not this one specifically necessarily, but other publications had kind of used this approach where they find people who have done press releases or people who have recently gotten grants. They contact them and they say, oh, can we write up a two-page article on your results? And then they charge really huge fees for the article, something like 800 pounds per page. Oh, dear God. Oh, my goodness. Nobody ends up reading the magazine article because it's... Because nobody it, knows about it. Yeah. Yes, it, exactly, because nobody like knows about it. It's, it's just some obscure... It's not like it's uh, nature. <laughs> yeah, it's some obscure journal that you've never heard of before. You can find it publicly on their <laughs> website, but it's uh, the only reason you find it on your website is because you're trying to find... Uh, the You're trying uh, to find it anyway because they contacted you about it. There is the thing with academic publications in major academic journals, like, well, some major academic journals, where they will charge you for publishing the material. But on the other hand, the Astrophysical Journal is a journal that everybody has heard of yeah, before. It's peer reviewed. Yeah. So, yep. <laughs> well, it's valid. It's peer reviewed, but everybody's heard of it. Whereas uh, some of these other things, nobody's ever heard of before. Uh, in any case, I really would not pay for stuff to be published in anything other than the major academic journal, yeah, really. Yeah, that's probably a good rule mm. of thumb. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you might not have uh, thought that academia had a shady underbelly, but <laughs> here you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, well escaped, George. Um, good, good job on avoiding um, all those tricksters. <laughs> and now, for someone who's not going to steal your money, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for November... 2016. Well, the great thing, of course, is that we have much longer nights now. There's plenty to see in the evenings, and one can even get up early. In fact, as I did the morning I recorded this, and make some observations uh, before dawn. So that's great. Well, soon after sunset, that lovely part of the sky with Cygnus and Lyra, with their bright stars Deneb and Vega, is setting over towards the west. A rather more empty part of the sky is towards the south and the southwest. It contains the square of Pegasus. The four stars that make up the square, top left one is called Alpha Rats, which actually is Alpha Andromedae, and that is a way to start finding that lovely galaxy M31 in Andromeda. And on the night sky webpage, I have two ways of finding it. One can star hop, moving 
round and up to the left of Alpharats and then sharp right to find it. Or you can go to Cassiopeia, which is almost overhead, and the V, the right-hand V, actually points straight down towards Andromeda. That's well worth finding. And, and at the beginning of November, at the end, when there's no real moonlight, you have a chance, too, of finding M33 in Triangulum. Much, much fainter, and you'll probably need binoculars to see it. To me, it looks like a little bit of tissue paper stuck on the sky. So over to the southeast, we have another lovely region of the sky. Higher up at the moment is Taurus, with the two open clusters, the Pleiades, higher up, and below and to the left, the Hyades. The lovely red star, a red giant called Aldebaran, looks as though it's part of the Hyades cluster, but is in fact about halfway there. And then rising above the horizon as time goes on through the night is Orion, the three stars of Orion's belt pointing up towards the Hyades and the Pleiades. And of course, in the sword of Orion, below the central star of the belt, is that wonderful nebula, the Orion Nebula, called M42. And way over to the east, you might just see rising Gemini. The two bright stars are Castor and Pollux, Castor being the higher one, and they are the heads of the heavenly twins. And finally, if one looks up at Cassiopeia and moves leftwards down towards Perseus, about halfway between, with binoculars, you'll see two little clusters of stars. It's called the, the Perseus Double Cluster. It's a beautiful object in a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? Well, in fact, we can see all the bright ones this month, but not brilliantly well, I think. Jupiter is the only planet that can be seen in the pre-dawn sky this month, rising some two and a half hours before the sun at the start of November. But by about 2.20 UT, or GMT as it will be then, by the end of the month. On the 1st of November, it will lie some 20 degrees above the southeastern horizon an hour before sunrise, and some 10 degrees higher by month's end. Though at its smallest and dimmest, it still has a magnitude of minus 1.7 and shows a 32 arc second disk. It remains in Virgo throughout the month and initially lies just 2 degrees below Porima, or Gamma Virginis, and sinks slowly southwards until by month's end it lies about halfway between Porima and Spica, which is Alpha Virginis. So with a small telescope, early risers should be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, and perhaps some of the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn's been around for a long time now. It's still visible low in the southwest after sunset, but it's only some 10 degrees above the horizon 45 minutes after sunset, so not too easy to see. However, as the month progresses, it will sink lower and become harder still to see. It lies in the southern part of Ophiuchus, some seven degrees up and to the left of Antares in Scorpius. One can't really hope for a sharp view, but you should be able to spot the wide-open ring system. Sadly now, Saturn is moving towards the southern part of the ecliptic, so for quite a number of years will only be seen at lower elevations. Perhaps it's time for a trip to the Southern Hemisphere. Mercury. Well, Mercury shining at magnitude minus 0.5, with a disk some five arc seconds across, becomes visible low in the southwest after sunset by about the third week of November. 
and slowly climbs higher in the sky until it will reach its furthest angular distance from the sun in mid-December. And it might just be spotted close to Venus on the 23rd of the month. Mars has also been visible for many months now. It's moving quickly eastwards through eastern Sagittarius and Capricornus. It dims from magnitude plus 0.4 to plus 0.6 during November. The red, I actually think salmon pink planet, can be seen low above the southern horizon throughout the month. But with a disk only about seven arc seconds across, no surface features will be seen. Venus in the west, set some two hours after the sun at the start of the month, but an hour later by month's end, as it begins to dominate the evening sky. Its brightness increases from minus 4 to minus 4.2 magnitudes during the month, while the angular size of the disk increases from 14 to 17 arc seconds. So that would mean more light is reflected in principle per unit area. But as it does so, its phase reduces from 78 to 70%, so less of the surface is illuminated by the sun from where we see it, and that explains why the brightness changes so little. Venus is moving eastwards, leaving Ophiuchus on the 9th to go into Sagittarius, where it passes over the teapot and will be just 7.5 arc minutes below its lid star, which is called Lambda Sagittarii. That's shining, by the way, at magnitude 2.8, and that'll be on the 17th, so that's a thing to look out for. So, finally, what about some highlights? Well, we do have some meteor showers in November. So in the hours before dawn, November gives us a chance to observe meteors from two showers. The first, that is thought, might produce some bright events, are the northern torrids, which have a broad peak of around 10 days, but normally give relatively few meteors per hour. The peak is around the 10th of November, and pleasingly, the moon is in the first quarter on the 7th, so in the first week of November, will have set by midnight. That will help. The meteors arrive from comet 2P stroke Enke. Its tail is especially rich in large, large particles, and this year we may pass through a relatively rich band. So it's possible that a number of fireballs might be observed. The better known November shower is the Leonids, which peaks on the night of the 17th-18th. Sadly, the moon will be just after full, and so will hinder our view. As one might expect, the shower's radiant lies within the sickle of Leo, and meteors could be spotted from the 15th to the 20th of the month. The Leonids enter the atmosphere at 71 kilometers per second, which is pretty fast. It might be worth having a look and even trying to photograph them, perhaps an exposure of 30 seconds, full aperture, at perhaps an ISO of 800 or 1600, because you just might capture a bright fireball. Up to 15 meteors an hour could be observed if near the zenith. The Leonids are famous because around every 30 years, a meteor storm might be observed when the parent comet 55-Temple-Tuttle passes close to the sun. In 1999, 3,000 meteors were observed per hour, but we are now halfway between these impressive events. Hence, we expect a far lower rate. Well, as I've mentioned, on the Jodrell Bank Night Sky website, it tells you how to find Andromeda, and when there's little moon in the sky, you have a chance also of seeing M33 in Triangulum.
should be quite easy with binoculars and if it really is a dark sky and there's not much light pollution you can even see Andromeda with your unaided eye. On November the 2nd after sunset you have a chance of seeing Venus, Saturn and the crescent moon. It's a very thin crescent moon it'll lie above Saturn which will be magnitude plus 0.5 whilst over to the left of Saturn will lie Venus at magnitude minus 4. And on the 5th of November before sunrise so perhaps not too many fireworks then Jupiter will lie above Porima in Virgo. So around one hour before sunrise looking towards the east-southeast Jupiter will be seen lying in Virgo Porima Gamma Virginis and above Spica, Alpha Virginis. So it's down there in the constellation Virgo. November the 15th, really all night, the full moon is close to the Hyades cluster, moving gradually away to the left. The moon actually moves surprisingly quickly across the sky, and uh, so if you're tracking it with a telescope, you have to have a different tracking rate than if you're tracking the stars, nebula or galaxies. On November the 20th, about one hour before sunrise, you could see a third quarter moon close to Regulus in Leo. In fact, they're going to be within about three degrees apart. That might be worth looking for. Sadly, of course, many of these, it will be cloudy, particularly up in the north of England, where I live, but you never know, you have a chance. And another thing I have on the website, always something about the moon, and this time there's a picture I took of the full moon pointing out the individual mare. So with binoculars or even your unaided eyes, you will have a chance to spot them and gradually learn the face of the moon. So plenty of time to observe the heavens. Let's hope for some clear nights this month. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodian listeners, here's Claire Brotherton with the night sky where you are. Kia and welcome to the November Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. As Scorpius or Tomato Amawi sets in the west, his arch-enemy and our summer constellation Orion rises towards the east along with Taurus and Canis Major. The bright star Antares, which marks the heart of the Scorpion, is also known as Rehua Tamawi. It represents one of the four po or pillars that hold Ranganui, the Sky Father, up in the sky. It sits just above the southwestern horizon at around 11pm at the beginning of the month. These four po form the basis of a celestial compass, a map of the night sky, that was used to navigate the vast oceans of our planet and bring our ancestors to Aotearoa, New Zealand. The other three po are marked by Matariki, the Pleiades, Totoru, the belt of Orion, and Takarua, Sirius, which line up along the eastern horizon. Matariki supports one of Rangi's shoulders and marks the rising point of the sun at the winter solstice. Takarua Sirius supports the other shoulder and is the closest bright star to the sun's rising point at the summer solstice. These two stars represent the extent of the sun's movement throughout the year. In between, rising directly east is Totoru, or the belt of Orion, marking the rising point of the sun at the time of the equinox. Stretching from Scorpius around to Orion is Tawaka or Tamaroti, or Tamaroti's canoe, which lines up along the horizon in our evening sky. The front of the canoe is marked by the tail of Scorpius, with the sting representing the beautifully carved wood that adorns the prow. The star at the end of the scorpion's curving tail marks the place where the bow meets the water, 
whilst the bright orange star Antares marks the crest of a wave as the Great Waka glides through the waters of the Milky Way. The Southern Cross marks the anchor Tepunga, and the pointers Alpha and Beta Centauri are the anchor line Tetora. The key seasonal markers of Takarua Sirius and Frehua Antares are on either side. Orion marks the stern of the canoe, with the elaborately carved stern post rising all the way up from red Betelgeuse to bluish Rigel. A tall mast rises from the waka all the way to Akana, high in the south, which at magnitude 0.46 is the brightest star in the southern constellation of Eridanus, the river, and the tenth brightest in the night sky. A little below Akana are two small fuzzy patches of light, the large and small Magellanic clouds, which mark the waka's sails. One story tells of Tamarotis sailing across the sky in his waka with all the stars in kete or baskets. He places the key seasonal and navigational stars in their correct positions in the sky, but finds he has lots of smaller stars left over. So he capsizes his waka, spilling all the smaller stars into the sky, forming Te Ikaroa, or the Milky Way. Another story tells of Tamarotis scattering bright pebbles in the dark, lightless sky to help guide his way home. The pebbles became the stars, and the wake of his waka formed the Milky Way. The sky we see in the mid-evening in October-November each year is, in fact, the same sky we see just before sunrise around June, the time we celebrate Matariki, or Maori New Year. It is said that the bright star Canopus, or Atutahi, the Araki, or High Chief of the Heavens, pulls up the anchor at the start of the year, starting the waka in motion. During the year, you can track the progress of Tamarote's waka as it moves across the sky, one day at a time. Canopus is the second brightest star in the nighttime sky, with a magnitude of minus 0.74, and the brightest in the southern constellation of Carina. It is a white F-type supergiant with a mass around 10 times that of our sun. It can be seen midway up the southeastern evening sky this month. Saturn can still be found in our evening skies at the start of the month, just to the right of Antares, and setting around 9.30, but it will disappear into the evening twilight by month's end. Venus starts November just above the pair, but continues to move eastwards against the background stars, rising through Sagittarius over the second half of the month. On the 17th, you'll find it right at the tip of the lid of the upside-down teapot asterism. Venus will be setting around 3 hours and 20 minutes after the sun throughout November. Mars is higher still, and continues to hold its position well, moving from Sagittarius through Capricorn and setting after midnight. Mercury also makes an appearance this month. On the 20th, it moves between Saturn and Antares, forming a line of similar brightness stars along the dusk horizon, before continuing to move up away from the pair. Unfortunately, Mercury's evening appearance this month will not be as favourable as that of August this year, as Mercury will set before twilight ends. Look out for the Leonid meteor shower, which peaks around the 17th of the month, when the Earth passes through the trail of dust and debris left behind by the comet Temple Tuttle. Whilst normally a reliable but fairly quiet meteor shower, observers have noticed that roughly every 33 years, the number of meteors observed during the shower shows a marked increase, as the Earth passes through the denser parts of the cometary debris tail. Sadly, the 2016 shower is not expected to reach these high levels, with a predicted maximum of around 10 to 20 meteors per hour. And with a bright 18-day-old moon in the sky, there will be significant interference to hamper our viewing. The radiant of the shower from which the meteors appear to originate is located in the constellation of Leo, which rises only a couple of hours before the sun in our morning sky. 
The best time to observe the Leonids is about two to three hours before sunrise on the mornings around the peak. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Well, thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Well, we have an email um, here which came in just yesterday um, from Ron Jones uh, on the subject of Megan. Uh, uh, and he says, I already miss you, Megan. Oh, Ron, I'm with you there. We miss her so much. She's wonderful. Um, thank you for many, many, many podcasts, which I've always looked forward to. My wife and I went to Jodrell on vacation a trip a few months ago. Wow. Tonight I'm going to a star party here in Tucson, Arizona, and there may be a small cloud in the sky, so we may not go. Here in Tucson, we have such great skies that when they aren't perfect, we get discouraged. Oh, it's a good thing we don't have that problem here in Manchester. <laughs> I've lived in Tucson really... <laughs> for three years, so I know exactly what he's talking about. I did my first postdoc in did Tucson. Did you? Yes. So is it just always sunny there? Not always. Uh, during the summer, you get what's called monsoon season, where you get a thunderstorm at about 4.30 in the afternoon. Every afternoon. Every afternoon sometimes. I also had that experience when I lived in New Mexico. I saw those in New Mexico. The monsoon season was just starting when I was there this summer. It was uh, We saw some pretty crazy thunderstorms. <laughs> but most of the time, the uh, skies are very clear, and you go out of town, and you can get out to uh, someplace which is semi-wilderness, complete wilderness, and just see everything. Wow, that sounds beautiful. Well, Ron, I hope um, I hope there were no clouds. I hope you had a nice night. Uh, and if not, I'm sure you'll stargaze another night. And uh, thanks for your lovely email. We'll pass on your regards to Megan the next time we see her. Our first piece of Facebook feedback for this edition of the Jogcast comes from Ben Harding, who says, What a great interview with Professor Dillon. Thanks, Monique. I'd not heard of high-speed astronomy before, as I sit painfully taking 10-minute exposures and hoping not to lose any more substar aircraft trails. It was great to find that they found unexpected results. It just goes to show what a varied science and hobby we have. I wasn't sure about the new star sign story, but then, as a Gemini, I'm sceptical. Keep on jodding. <laughs> well, Ben, as someone who's also dabbled in amateur astronomy, I feel your pain. Stick at it. Ben, are you still a Gemini? Have you checked? You should check. Because <laughs> it's all changed now. <laughs> so Francis Day writes in via Facebook. In the interview with Megan Argo, the interviewer suggested that maybe Jodcast interviews sometime went on for too long. No! <laughs> That's the joy of listening to a podcast. Please don't stop just when it's getting interesting. It's so wonderful never to have to listen to those dread words. Sorry, I'm going to have to hurry you. Very pleased to hear your survey liked the level of science presentation. It's just brilliant. Please don't change it. And Ben Dyer has been in touch to say, really enjoyed, as always, both September episodes, especially agreed with all your thoughts on the listener survey, in particular, your rightful defense of the sometimes lighthearted tone of the show. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> um, uh, I agree with you there on that. Science is a method, not a tone. Be as quirky or political as you like. It cannot affect the accuracy. It cannot affect the accuracy of the science. Thanks for that, Ben. That's lovely to hear. From Twitter, Bob Gagan says... Enjoyed the segment on high-speed astronomy with Vic Dillon. Guest instruments were new to me. Could you feature more of them? We'll try, Bob. We'll try. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. 
On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us posts. The address is available on the website. The editors were Naomi Asambre Frimpong, Benjamin Shaw, Claire Brotherton, Xiaojin Lim, Jake Morgan, and Charlie Walker. The producers were Parvin Mansour and Charlie Walker. Until next time, Jada! Jada!